Hey, hey, y'all. It's me, Robin. And just real quick before we get to today's episode, if you are loving listening to the podcast, or maybe you don't know because you've just pressed play for the first time ever, but if you like to listen to things in your earbuds, you are going to be so happy to know that Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors is now released as an audiobook. You can get it in Audible or wherever else you get your audiobooks. And of course, you can still get it in print and ebook. If you go to robingobel.com slash book, it's going to give you all the options, including that you could order a signed copy from my local bookstore. Alrighty, y'all. Here's that podcast episode you're waiting for. So when your kid's behavior is baffling and yours is too, sometimes, yeah, I know. Let's take a break from all the bamboozle here on the baffling behavior show. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Baffling Behavior Show, the podcast formerly known as Parenting After Trauma. I'm your host, Robin Goebel. I'm a former therapist turned author, educator, community creator, and of course, podcaster. If you're new here, this podcast is for parents of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many of the parents who listen to the show have kids with a history of trauma, especially complex and attachment trauma. But over the past several years, more and more parents of kids with vulnerable nervous systems due to other reasons or maybe no known reason at all have been tuning in too. I am so fortunate that in my 20-year career, I've studied intensely with some of the leaders in the field of relational neuroscience, which is simply the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human. Relational neuroscience has helped me make sense of even the most baffling behaviors from the kids in my office, and yes, my own even. That has allowed me to then develop a map toward helping kids get the support that they need so that their nervous system can heal. On this show, I'm able to share that map with you. Today, I get to introduce to you my very good friend, Ginger Healy, LCSW. Ginger is the Director of Programs at the Attachment and Trauma Network. She's the co-host of the Regulated and Relational Podcast and the author of the brand new book, Regulation and Co-Regulation, Accessible Neuroscience That Brings Calm into the Classroom. Obviously, Ginger is a powerhouse in helping to change the world for kids with vulnerable nervous systems, as well as the adults, parents, caregivers, and educators who support them. The Attachment and Trauma Network is a nonprofit education and advocacy organization dedicated to promoting the healing of kids impacted by trauma, as well as their schools, families, and communities. When the podcast is done, you're going to want to go check out Ginger's podcast and her new book, but also the resources offered by the Attachment Trauma Network. I'll make sure links to all those things are down in the show notes. Alrighty, y'all, without any further delay, let's meet Ginger. Ginger, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here, and I'm just happy to have this time to connect. I feel like we've known of each other for a long time, but haven't had the opportunity to do a lot of one-on-one connection. So I'm really looking forward to this afternoon. Thank you. I feel the exact same way. You wear many hats and 
there are so many facets of what you do and who you are in the world that I know my audience will relate to and want to know all about. So let's just dive on in. Tell everybody listening who you are, what you do, how you've come to do what you do now. Okay. Yeah, let's see. Let's figure out who I am. That's a that's a good question. <laughs> um, I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I um, have been doing that and been in that field for many, many, many years. I started out um, doing child abuse investigations, which was super hard, yeah. and I learned a lot from that. And then I worked at the hospital as a crisis social worker, and I actually really enjoyed that. I found that I was good in a crisis and that I could manage um, a crisis well. Um, and that's, I think, where I learned to co-regulate. That was, you know, 20 years ago when we didn't really use that word a lot. But looking back, I think that's exactly what was happening and then um, I started um, working in the adoption field. And how I how that all happened was that um, in the midst of working and going to graduate school and, and figuring career stuff out, I, you know, got married and wanted to start a family. And um, it wasn't happening easily or quickly. And I started going on humanitarian trips internationally to... Um, just to travel and to and to ex experience um, international social work and and look at pursuing pursuing that as a um, career as well. But in the meantime, I one day showed up at an orphanage in Romania and fell in love with a little two year old boy that didn't have a mom and I didn't have a boy and we uh, we fell in love with each other and started that adoption process. And so I. Um, it took about three years for that adoption to process. He wow. was five years old when he came home. And in the middle of that adoption, I got pregnant. And so I got two boys at once <laughs> and neither of them spoke English. <laughs> and I, um, my goodness, it was, it was a challenging time. I discovered what it felt like to have postpartum depression mm -hmm. and post-adoption depression. I was one of those that thought that I knew everything and didn't need any help and, you know, was quite humbled immediately. I, it brought me to my knees and, um, I knew that I needed to be home with these boys are, um, biological son was diagnosed with autism. And um, so they both had a, a lot of needs and different needs and needs that I could not meet by myself. I did not know what I was doing and I was struggling emotionally and physically to meet these boys' needs. And so I knew that I needed to focus on them and be at home with them. But I also knew that I was going to go crazy if I didn't reach out for help. Um, and so I reached back out to our adoption agency and said, help. And then I said, and do you have any work for me to do? Because I'm home now, but I, so I want to help other adoptive parents and I want to feel of use, um, in a professional way and, and fill my cup that way as well. And they had just started um, 
China program. And so they put me um, as the social worker for the China program. And I did that for 15 years while I raised my kids. I ended up having two more. So we have four children. And um, so I worked in the adoption field and traveled internationally for 15 years and raised my kids. And then um, in 2018, I started on with the Adopt Attachment and Trauma Network. So that was a big change. And that, oh boy, that's been an amazing adventure that I just have absolutely loved. So currently I'm the program director for the Attachment and Trauma Network. We have a lot of programs over there between our school program and our um, school conference, our um, creating trauma-sensitive schools conference is the largest in the world, and we can talk about that later if we want to. It's a great resource, um, and we have a parent program that teaches therapeutic parenting for parents like me um, who have children who have experienced early childhood trauma and loss and developmental trauma, um, all of those things that is such a passion program of mine to help parents who and caregivers who are really struggling with meeting the needs of these kids who have adversities or early adversities and neurodiversities. It, um, there's so much need for resources and support in um, for parents who are caring for children who have all different exceptional needs. Um, so the Attachment and Trauma Network is a great um, resource for families. And I just absolutely love that job too, because I'm still working virtually from home, but still also get to travel. And um, so that is educationally a little bit what I've been doing all these years um, and personally what I've been doing all these years. And then just recently this year, I have been able to add the title author to my name, which is really fun and exciting to be able to offer another resource for caregivers and educators and child-serving professionals um, who have been walking this trauma-informed attachment-focused journey that I've been walking all these past almost 30 years, um, been able to add another resource to that. So that, I don't know, does that lead me to where we are today? <laughs> I think so. Also, we have a lot of similarities I didn't know about. Like I also started at CPS as an investigator. It was my first job out of grad school. I lasted 14 weeks. Yes. That was not I, sustainable. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then I did medical social work for years. I yep. didn't know that. And That's also awesome. loved medical social work. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not for everyone, but it. If I reflect back on it, it's that crisis chaos piece that requires someone to come in who is regulated and balanced and steady and direct traffic, you know. And I didn't know I could do that, and because you know that's such a unique position to be in, and absolutely loved it. So it's really cool to hear that you did that and loved that as well, because I think it's a unique um, position that is just yep. such a valuable yep. one. Yeah. I worked in multiple ERs in the city, including the children's one and our trauma center. But I also worked almost always, I just worked call. Like I never yeah. worked an official 
you know, job, I was always working call, which was added a whole nother layer that actually I really enjoyed. Like I really enjoyed showing up and, you know, helping when Mm -hmm. needed. Um, And when asked for it, right, which is so different than other social work jobs where you're brought in because of a court case or brought in because of somebody doesn't want you there, but, you know, needs you there, where I I know that whole feeling of I am wanted, I am needed. It's a little bit selfish, but boy, it's a it's a dynamic, a power dynamic that is, you know. It just changes everything that happens moving forward. Yeah. And it also was kind of a one and done thing. Like I showed up, I did my thing, patients went home, I went home. And that is very different than my current life, which I absolutely adore for different reasons. But there was, you know, something to be said for the show up, do your job, go home, especially when also my son was really little. It it was great. I'm interrupting the show real quick because if you happen to be a new listener, you might find yourself being a little overwhelmed by all this information. That makes total sense. I mean, there's like 150 episodes plus all the free resources that are available over my website. It's just a lot. So many folks have asked me, where do I start? So I created a separate podcast stream called Start here. What I did is I took the 10 episodes that I want you to listen to first, and then I want you to listen to in this specific order, and I put them into a separate podcast stream so that you don't have to search for them. You can just press play and they'll play one after the other after the other. If you go to robingobel.com slash start here, you'll be able to get an invitation to subscribe, and then you'll be able to listen right in the same podcast app you're using right now. RobinGobel.com slash start here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're yep. right about that. Yep. And that's an interesting dynamic as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing adoption home studies. I just had a colleague oh who worked in the ER, actually worked call with me at the ER, who also worked at a foster adoption agency and they needed someone to write home studies. And she knew like I wasn't working full time. I was home with my kiddo and she's like, hey, would you like to do these? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> And so that really is actually how I started being, you know, really connected to adoption, adoptive families and complex trauma was doing those home studies. That is super cool. Yeah. All these things that we didn't even know we overlapped. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. So I want my listeners to first know a little bit more about what y'all do at uh, Attachment and Trauma Network. Julie was on the, Julie, your executive director was on the show, but it's been a long time, like at least a year and a half, if not more. So definitely have so many new listeners who might not be really familiar with the resources that you offer. So give just a little summary of the work that you do there and how people can access those services. Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. The Attachment and Trauma Network was formed like almost 28 years ago. It's been around a long time. It's a nonprofit agency that serves really anyone. It started out as um, focusing on parents or caregivers of children who were impacted by trauma. 
because it started out with a group of moms who had adopted children and were seeing all these attachment struggles and just didn't know where to turn. And so they turned to each other. And then from there, they created a lot of resources and support. Mostly they were just a really great support to each other, to validate each other and to, you know, see each other and be there and, you know, not judge. And talk about what worked and what didn't work and all of that. And then from there, it just grew and grew and grew. And um, I don't know, I guess I want to say about eight years ago, the school's program was added in. Um, Dr. Melissa Saden was a uh, school principal. She was a teacher. She was on the school board. And she had adopted a child from Bulgaria who was really struggling. And so she you know, came to the attachment and trauma network for the parent caregiver piece. But because she was working in the schools, she could see the overlap and the need for teachers and educators and paras to, to be able to help these kids in the classroom. And so we started this, we, they Mm -hmm. uh, started the creating trauma sensitive schools program which included a yearly conference. And that is still going strong today. It's the largest conference in the world. And we meet once a year. Um, It travels um, depending on location, but it's always the same time of year. It's always over uh, president uh, holiday, presidential holiday, so that teachers can come because, um, you know, that, time off is so precious. And so you've got that weekend that folds over into the holiday every year. So that's the timing of it. Um, And then we follow up after the conference with resources and support for educators, Um, go into the classroom and schools and do professional development when needed. Um, There's a lot of support that we provide to educators. And then the parent support, of course, will always continue with ATN, uh, we have, and, and what I love about ATN, especially because I came to it as a parent mm-hmm. in need, was that the sort, the resources and support are free. Yeah, we have support group, and we have a resource directory that we can link you up with someone locally in your area, face to face. We can do virtual support as well, but it's so nice to have that local face to face support. Um, and we have. Um, my mind just went blank. We've got so many supports and resources available. I I'm just on the email all the time with people look, you know, hustling and looking for resources and support and offering advice when and where I can. And um, we do webinars. You know, we we're just we've done parent conferences. We had a wonderful one last fall. We're just trying to spread the education and and get the work out to everybody for free. Yeah. Um, and and just continue that work. So, you know, if you just Google attachment trauma network, attachtrauma.org, you can find our resources there. You can always get a hold of me. But um, yeah, we are available to help and support. Yeah, I'm so grateful for all the work you do for families and also for families in the schools because there is this aspect, you know, of our our kids and our families, it feels like we have absolutely no control over it, right? Like I send my kid into this other environment all day long. And there's this sometimes 
there's this sense of like just crossing my fingers that the people who he's with all day long are, you know, see, I mean, really when it comes right down to it, like seeing him, you know, in the yeah. best way possible, like his truest self. And I know for certain, you know, his kids' behaviors escalate and get yeah. more difficult, that it gets harder and harder and harder for the adults because they have so many other things to do as well, you know, to really, really, really see our kids. And so when I think about the the resources and support that you offer families, offer schools, but then how that is also, a, you know, a resource and support for families as well, that you're helping the schools because there's just, yeah. it's so limited. I think what parents can do to support what's happening in the schools. Oh, yeah. Well, and I always say as a therapist that I can work with a child on average one hour per week you know, but the truth of the matter is, is that the most therapeutic environment is going to be where the child spends most of their time and that's home and school. Yeah. And school is sometimes just as equally, um, time spent than at home, especially if the parents aren't there for work or for whatever reason. And so in order for a child to really truly heal and move forward and overcome these childhood adversities and not just big, scary stuff, but just the day-to-day -day stress that compounds and has increased exponentially since COVID. We have to buffer that stress. We can't take it away. We can't wipe it out. There's no magic wand for any human being in any circumstance. We're going to experience stress. Not all stress is bad, but if we don't buffer that stress and teach skills of how to handle the stress, then the stress just gets worse and bigger and harder and becomes toxic. And it's so detrimental to these kids. And so they just need us. They need safe, committed, attuned, regulated adults to help them. And that is why it's so important to teach therapeutic parenting and trauma-sensitive school environments. They're the one and the same and they overlap. You don't have to be a therapist. You That's not your job. So don't take that off your shoulders. You don't need to be that. Therapeutic just means healing. We have to create a safe healing environment in the home and at school. And we can do that. And we can especially do that if we do it together and we're on the same age and we're doing the same things and we're having really good communication with each other so that the student, the child knows who's on their team, you know, and so that they have this team that just surrounds them in a bubble as much as possible to kind of buffer that stress and yeah. teach ways to handle it when that adult is not there. Cause you know, we can't be there all the time. So there's so much good and hope in schools and parents working together and adding the community in, having a partnership with all areas of where the child, you know, walks their daily life, creating safe environments in every place possible as much as we can. 
I know y'all's conference know is conference. huge. And so what well, I'm so curious to know, because I think this can help folks know where to start with connecting with like the educators in their kids' lives is what's exciting the educators right now? Like what is like sparking our educators right now and making them like, ooh, I want to learn more about that. Yeah. I think educators need practical tools and strategies, just, you know, as easy as possible because educators have been through so much these past few years and continue to. I just spoke with one of my friends um, Friday night. We were at a wedding and we were sitting by each other and she just put her hand on my knee and she's like, I am so tired. And it wasn't because of lack of sleep, you know, it was, but it was like this exhaustion, this yeah. draining, this, you know, that she just, I could see it in her face. I hadn't seen her for a few months. And so it was like, oh my gosh, you just look like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. And she said, I love the kids. I always have. I always will. I just love the kids so much, but there's just so much other things that I have to deal with. And so the last thing I ever want to do is pile more on an educator's plate. They already have too much and they just, they can't see past just even the the moment. So I, when, when I think about the conference and with other resources, it's about like lifting the burden and easing the burden and giving them more easy to implement accessible tools and strategies that make things easier. And that's kind of sometimes hard to get across to educators when you start talking about try this, because it feels like one more thing. But what I know educators come away from the conference going, okay, if I, you know, implement this or do it differently, that will take things off the plate. For example, like behavior referrals and and behavior difficulties. We hear that all the time that they're the behaviors have ramped up. We're having more referrals to the principal or in school suspension or behavior problems. But if we go about um, managing the classroom in a different way where there's a more of a safe felt feeling of felt safety then we can alleviate some of the behaviors. And then you've taken a whole lot off your plate that you don't have to worry about. So I love to give um, ideas and we talk a ton at the conference on you know classroom management and how to create the feelings of felt safety and um, how to implement plans that um, really fill the educator's cup because you know, like I was mentioning before, educators are so drained. How do we help them? How do we assist them? How do we collaborate with them and not pile more on them? And and we can do that. Parents can do that. Parents can help educators. Um, Child-serving professionals can help educators. And, And so that's a lot what the conference is about, is how to take things off the educator plate, how to implement new and easy things. And it's a just a starts with a paradigm shift, you know, of can't versus won't, you know, willful behavior versus what's going on in the brain, just that easy, basic neuroscience that we can also teach the kids. Um, There's just a lot of, and, and that's what educators are picking up on now. We're seeing it all over. They're excited to hear 
what we can do instead of flip charts or behavior plans or star charts. Like we can get rid of those, take those off your plate, alleviate the need for them. Um, I've been hearing a lot of, you know, exciting talk about that too, just that we're making a paradigm shift of really what is best for the child and their nervous system. In the classroom, you know, so I, I what I hear you saying so clearly is to approach educators with the truth that we have the same goal. Like we mm-hmm. want to make their lives easier. And I know like firsthand that feeling of you want me to do more? Like <laughs> I'm I'm maxed out and I also know that feel like I know that reaction, you know, when I'm talking to educators that there is this sense of just like one more person coming in and telling mm-hmm. me how to do my job and how to do it different and and I think kind of front loading the conversation with I know it's going to feel like I'm asking you to do something extra, but actually I want your job to be easier. Does it feel like Mm -hmm. educators are kind of believing that like they're able to see that, that kind of collaborative place of like, we're not blaming you or asking you to fix all these problems as if it's your fault. We're wanting to make the classroom experience like more enjoyable. When I talk to educators, I'm like, listen, you became a teacher for a reason. Like you love kids and you want to teach them this thing. Like you love this particular subject so much that you like made a career out of wanting to share your love of this subject with, with kids. That's so Mm -hmm. cool. Like let's help kids brains get to a place where they can take in all that cool stuff you want to share with them. Oh my gosh. You just hit on something so important. It's just that knowledge of, okay, you have all this amazing, wonderful stuff you want to teach, but that child cannot receive that and process that until they are in a certain part of their brain. And if they feel any threat or any danger, if they detect or perceive anything that feels unsafe, then that part of their brain that protects them will not let that information pass because they just have to survive the moment. And so it really does help a teacher to know that and to know how to do that. And and we have to start in the home and in the classroom with the adult because the, the child cannot learn, heal, grow, you know, make it really well from point A to point B without that adult, safe adult attuned to presence. And so we have to start with the adult. If the adult is okay, right, then the kid will be okay. If, if the teacher is regulated and feels good is, is in that part of their brain, then that that's contagious. And that, and then the classroom all in the classroom feel that. And it goes the other way too. We've seen that where, you know, one dysregulated student can dysregulate the whole classroom. And so we, as the adult, whether it's in the home or in the classroom, we got to work on ourselves first and, and check in and see how we're doing. And that is not at all meant to blame or shame because I 
you know, was even telling you before we hit record that I haven't been the greatest mom the past two days. If we pushed to record, my kids would get on here and say, you know, all the things that I did that I have to apologize for. So we don't have to be perfect. This is one of my most favorite things to shout to the world, you know, is that we don't have to be perfect. We, it's impossible and we don't want to model perfection to kids because that just shames them. (laughs) We can make mistakes and model how to repair and fix the mistakes. And that goes even further. So we all should get second, third, 17th chances and not be perfect and, and continue trying and continue showing up and continue modeling what to do when things don't go well, because it's going to happen every single day, you know? So I never want teachers to feel like they have to be perfect or that they have to get through every single point of their lesson or that they have to, whatever pressure they're putting on themselves, I want them to go, I'm doing the very best I can and I'm going to try something new and I'm going to give myself grace and I'm going to give my students grace and we're just going to keep going. And as long as those students know, hey, I am showing up for you. I see you. I hear you. I am got your back. It's when they'll learn. That's when they'll digest the information, when that relationship is there and trust is built between the teacher and student. Oh man, that's when you see that brain just light up and fire and all the good stuff happen. But when there's pain and dysregulation and fatigue and all the things that is burning because of life and a million other reasons, that's when we've really got to step up and help each other and co-regulate each other as adults so that the adults can co-regulate the child or the student. Yeah, I think I've read research that talks about how kids do, I don't know how much better, so much better. Let's just say so much better mm-hmm. when they have this felt sense that the teacher likes them. Yes, just that, that, that is enough. Yeah. yeah. And that makes so much sense when you think about that our kids spend all day long at school and some of them with one yes. teacher all day and you know, I have a big kid who t- travels teacher to teacher to teacher, but I mean, I'm self-employed for a reason. Like I like to be real picky and choosy about who I spend my my days yeah. with. And our kids really don't get that luxury. And to spend all day long with somebody who it feels like is just yeah. chronically annoyed with you. And, and sometimes rightfully so. Like yeah. these kids have pretty right. challenging right. behaviors. Right. And if there's ways that we can help kids see themselves, you know, as wonderfully precious kids who happen to have challenging behaviors <laughs> as yeah. opposed to just a challenging kid. Yeah. And, and listen, there are going to be kids that you are not going to click with. And I am not advocating for you to push so hard through that. There should be someone else in the building. A lot of um, uh, building schools now at the beginning of the year, um, I'm hearing more and more of this exercise. I can't remember. It doesn't matter what the name is, but every kid it's a picture or a name on the wall and all of the staff go through and mark 
who they know and have a relationship with. And oftentimes it's not the kids in your classroom, right? And that's fine. What you have to look for is who are the kids that there's no dot that signifies somebody knows them. And then we've got to assign that out so that every kid has somebody that every day is watching out for and looking in the eyes and giving a fist bump to. And I think it's social mapping. But either way, it's a way to make sure every kid gets seen. And so if there's a kid in your classroom that for whatever reason, you're just not there, then somebody else, make sure somebody else gives that kid a look in the eyes that day. What my son this year came home, um, I don't even remember what the class was, but it wasn't his favorite class regarding content. So whether it was math or whatever, he's like, I don't like math. Let's just say it was math. But a few weeks later, he's like, oh, I love that class. And I'm like, you do? Why? And he goes, the teacher gave me the coolest nickname. It was like Flavor Flav or something. You know what I mean? And ever ever since then, that's his favorite class. (laughs) And he's getting a good grade in that class. He doesn't like the content. It doesn't interest him. You know what I mean? Like he probably would have failed it except for the fact that somebody, his teacher made an effort to say, hey, cool kid, here's a fun, funky nickname, which tells you, I know you, I like you, I see you. And it's just this atmosphere of who cares about the content? Let's focus on the relationship. And because of that, the content came class, yes. you know? Yep. My kid so had, my kid had the same thing happen. I think it was last year. It might've been last semester, but I think it was last year. Same, like his least favorite subject, hands down. It was Spanish, yeah. <laughs> but it was a class he really enjoyed because he really connected with that teacher. Huh. Yeah. And, and that is the whole thing going circling back to our conversation about not putting one more thing on the teacher's plate because they're worried about testing and they're worried about content and and they got to get through all that curriculum like that but somehow if we focus not on the curriculum and the content but on the relationship that other piece the curriculum and the content fall into place and the test scores we have Proven, we have records of test scores increasing when we shift the focus onto connection, onto relationship, because children learn better, learn more, retain more information if they first feel safe, second are connected, third regulated, then they learn. So... I mean, it's like the research with movement and recess, right? That if we give more, right? So we're always, and I get it. I'm a mom and a human as much as everyone else is. Like, I get it. Like when things are going off the rails and especially I like kids one at a time. Like, I just can't imagine. I'm I'm an only child. I was a therapist with one kid in the office. Like, I just cannot truly imagine like... 30 kids the same (laughs) time. And I really relate to the feeling of 
get, wanting to get like more controlling, more punitive, more more rigid as things go off the rails because it feels risky to do anything else. Yeah. But it is like the research is so clear up the connection, yep. up movement, up recess, yes. free play, free social play. And actually then the education pieces improve yeah. as well. It's a risk yes. though. I mean, it's just a leap. I mean, it's not a risk because the research is so clear, but it, it's a risk like in our nervous system, right? Yes. When we're teetering on the edge of like uh, losing control, the last thing we yeah. want to do is increase connection or, you know, yeah. start a cat a game of tag or something, but yeah. it works. It feels counterintuitive, but we have enough yeah. research now that it is indisputable. Yes. Completely. And more and more people are doing it now too. So that makes it feel, you know, safer and more normal. But um, yeah. it's, it is absolutely indisputable. It is. I was just working with a group the other week um, and they were like, well, do you have the research on like recess? Cause I'm pretty, I'm pretty rigid about like, I will, I will go to bat for a kid who's losing mm -hmm. recess at school. And like, well, do you have the research? I'm like, you really just have to type into Google. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just, it's so prolific at this point, the amount yeah. of peer reviewed research that's available for both of these, you know, the yeah. connection in the classroom as well as like recess and movement. And I want to cycle back real quick to the, or circle back to this exercise you talked about because... Hmm. about the 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 um the schools identifying yeah. which kids don't easily have you know teacher eyeballs on them whether that's like a new kid or a kid who you know some kids are a little harder to like i mean that's just yeah reality i love this idea of like like de-shaming it for the educators and also turning it in to a team experience right like for each individual teacher, it doesn't have to be all on me. I know yes. there's this team and nobody's judging me because maybe I struggle to connect with this kid, but that person struggles to connect with that kid. No shame, no blame. We're just here to help each other and like turn to where the resources are, which feels like a way the school is really kind of cultivating this experience of felt safety for the educators. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it goes, it goes back to this whole concept of if we take care of the principal, she will take care of the teachers and then the teachers will take care of the kids. Yeah. But it, that's it. It's not always intuitive to do that. We always just focus on the kids, which we, yeah, should, but how we do that is through the adults in their life. That's how we build resilience yeah. is if we're not born resilient. It doesn't come automatically. It has to be built, created, scaffolded, modeled, practiced. It's all about who is surrounding the child. It's the adults that create those those buffer relationships. And at school, there are so many opportunities for buffer relationships. It can be anybody in the lunchroom. It can be any custodian in the hall. It can be the bus driver. It can be anyone who just can help that child know that they are 
needed and seen and welcomed and that we miss you when you are gone. Oh my gosh, that's such a big piece what you just said there. I think about that in the programs that I run is I want people to know that their presence matters and not in like a, I'm checking up on you and you need to participate way, but like, like you're so important that we notice when you're not here and we're wondering about you and we're thinking about you and we're holding you in mind. And I really think that that matters like so tremendously for somebody to be really explicit. We've noticed, we noticed you're not here and we're holding you in mind. Yeah. You left a hole in the classroom and in the school and you are needed. We, I was just doing some research um, for another podcast on belonging and it is like a primal need for us to belong. It's this concept of we cannot heal in isolation. We loneliness is like a form of starvation. Yes. You know, we die without it. And school is a great place to find belonging, but it's also a risky place because if we're so desperate for belonging, we'll find it in ways that are not safe. Yeah. So that is why we need all eyes on all kids and to help them belong in a safe, happy way. They are needed. We do need them. And and, and it goes the same for adults. It's oh, just yeah. a human thing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you've written this sweet little book for educators. It is little. I purposely, purposely. Re- made it very short and sweet and doable because if I were to say, Hey, teacher, read this 500 page book, you know, I don't know, they might get aggressive and I wouldn't uh, blame them. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's like a guidebook, yeah. a, a handbook. It's, it's a little bit bigger than a pamphlet, but it can be digested really easy. And, and for that purpose, just kind of a one-on-one basic um, guidebook for educators and it actually, it's it's for caregivers. It's for any child-serving professional. It does say that it is all about the classroom, but it is so easily modified yeah. for any environment that the child is in. Well, I do think it's I, wonderful to be able to equip non-educators with a resource that they can offer to educators that is digestible. That is something yeah. that doesn't make the, the teacher just panic or kind of yeah. look at you with horror. Like, I'm sorry, you want me to do what? But it is. Yeah. And when I say like sweet little book, like I hope that doesn't sound condescending. Like it is truly both no. of those things. Like it is short and digestible and um, it it's sweet in that like uh, like delightful kind of way. Mm -hmm. Like there's just these little pieces that are real easy to, to glance over and see a picture and put it down and then maybe come back to it later or use it as a little guidebook to go back to really specific ideas. But I think things like this are like offering co-regulation to the educator, right? It's like they get a little dose of you 
along mm-hmm. with them that they can kind of lean into knowing like, oh, I, I do have the support. I do have this resource. I do have yeah. this thing I can open up quickly and get, uh, get a, a quick idea from. So I think it's just brilliantly laid out. Well, I really appreciate that because it truly is. It's like a love letter to yeah. educators. Like I see you and I know you are going through a lot and this will help you. And yeah, it will value validate a lot of things. I think there will be a lot of aha moments where you're like, Oh, okay. I get it. Whether it be like how I was handling it as the educator or why this kid was behaving the way they were, it will hopefully just make more sense as to why. And then because of that, shift and shape how we respond to kids and that whole domino effect you know should really alleviate a lot of really behavior struggles in the classroom and the home one of my favorite things about doing work that is theoretically focused on children right like we're educating adults about kids and nervous systems is that eventually adults start to apply the information to themselves <laughs> in a in a little subtle well, way in, right? a, in a super compassionate kind of way yes. right like when yes. we're drowning when like the world is on fire most of us are researching like how do i solve that problem Mm. and not necessarily how do I find more compassion for myself in the midst of this problem? Because people who are living in chaos and who are surrounded by kids who are struggling behaviorally, the truth is, is that the adults start to struggle behaviorally. Like I've, I don't know a grown up who hangs out with kids with vulnerable nervous systems who doesn't sometimes act in ways that shocks themselves. Yes. Yes. So bringing compassionate understanding to them Mm. about their behavior that they feel ashamed about, I think is really, truly one of my favorite parts of doing this work. Ah, I couldn't agree more. That was a big aha to me to really finally get vulnerable enough to look at my triggers. For sure. And what was going on. And then once I could manage those, oh my gosh, well then, yeah, I didn't need to have a meltdown over anything, which didn't cause a domino meltdown. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. You're right. We're all just here doing the very best that we can. And sometimes it's not very good. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why we have tomorrow exactly. to start over and try again. Yes. yes. Well, yeah, I'm going to make sure everybody gets information about how to find Attachment Trauma Network, how to tr- find information about the conference, as well as, of course, how to find information about your book, which is Regulation and Co-Regulation, Accessible Neuroscience and Connection Strategies that bring calm into the classroom. Thank you. I appreciate that. Anything else? Did I miss anything? What else do you want people to go and and connect with? Mm, boy. No, ATN, the conference, we, your book. 
Yeah, we okay. do have a podcast. Too oh, that's right. That I thought about that at the beginning free. and then I stopped thinking about it. Yeah, huh. tell us about your podcast. The podcast is called Regulated and Relational, and it's produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. And you get to hear me and Julie Beam, the executive director, and all of our whole personal, vulnerable life experience. And then, of course, we've got some a little bit of professional knowledge in there, too. But we have awesome guests and we have just a lot of great conversations that really validate and support and offer a lot of resources to this whole audience that we're talking to and talking about. Amazing. I'll make sure that gets in there as well. That's an important resource for everyone too. Well, Ginger, this has been wonderful. I agree. Thank you. Yes. It's taken us too long to sit down and, and have a conversation. So I'm really glad for your time this afternoon and, and for the amazing work that you're doing and that ATN is doing and this commitment to accessible, practical resources for our people out there on the front line, like doing the really hard work. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. I'm there. I get it. And yeah, we just, we all need each other. So we're here for you. We do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are you ending this episode with maybe... Big sigh of relief, like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash beingwith, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go 
subscribes to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you can get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you can just head to my website, download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now. And I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.